0: Welcome to Taxpayer Talk. My name is Jordan Williams. With us today, we have Isla from the Taxpayers Union, Matt Boyd, who is a philosopher and health researcher, an expert in health economics and global catastrophic events or catastrophic risk, a former advisor to the National Health Committee, and Dr. Don Brash, the former Reserve Bank Governor. Uh, Welcome to the Taxpayers Union podcast.
1: Thank you. Thanks very much.
0: Uh, Isla, extraordinary events we've seen this afternoon. Perhaps take us through what the government has announced.
2: Well, in response to the leap in cases over the past few days and the fact that we can't rule out community transmission, indeed the government is treating it as confirmed. In the immediate sense, we've moved into Level 3 and in 48 hours' time we'll be in Level 4 of the government's urgency system. I won't get into the details on the health side of it, but additionally, there were some economic measures that were announced this afternoon. The key one being that the one hundred and fifty thousand dollar cap is being lifted, so that all employers can access payments to cover their staff. Additionally, there are some there are. There's been the removal, rather, of a few requirements, so that other kinds of businesses businesses that might not have been around for a full year, for example, can also access the scheme. And finally, there have been an agree- There has been rather an agreement to freeze rent increases for tenants.
0: Matt, from a health perspective, is this is what the government has done? Uh, too little, too much, or about right, from your perspective?
1: Look, it it totally depends on what the what the aim is. Now, if the aim is to eliminate this disease from New Zealand uh, completely. Uh, and sort of ride out the global pandemic um hopefully having a, a, an absolute minimum number of cases then yes going to level 4 now is absolutely the right the right decision and the reason for that is that uh the the, the nature of this disease is that uh it spreads in the community silently before before it res- reveals itself and we've seen a sudden leap in the number of cases in New Zealand over the last few days uh going up to over 100 now that almost certainly means there's a lot more cases out there and incremental uh, raising of uh, of mitigation measures will never catch up to it. We have to start with the maximum measures and then close in on the disease.
0: So this sounds, what the Prime Minister said a few weeks ago, a, a stamp it out phase. Have we got any realistic chance of of stamping this out, do you think?
1: So, uh, look, I, I think we do have a chance. It's hard to know what the, what the probability of that is. Uh, historically, with pandemics, I mean, no one has ever stopped a pandemic before. But uh, the measures that are being tried at the moment in various places around the world have also never really been tried before to to this degree. And I think New Zealand has uh, several factors in its favour. You know, we're a, we're an isolated nation with a with a low density of population, with a, a good uh, health system and, and public health experts, uh, and a society that is uh, largely one of law and order, where we're willing to cooperate with each other. So I think if anywhere has a chance, New Zealand does. And I think looking forward, this. Uh, what you might call a great experiment in trying to stamp it out aggressively, uh, uh, the, the result of this will be very, uh, very, hopefully very beneficial to New Zealand, but hopefully very interesting and useful moving forward as a, uh, as a world uh, to learn about how to deal with some of these things um, in case one that's even worse comes along.
0: So best case scenario, we're all inside in our homes for a month. With the number of new cases declines and the new cases are quickly identified and because everyone is isolated from each other, we hope that there's no new case. What would, in best case scenario, what does New Zealand look like in 6, 8 or 12 weeks time?
1: Yeah, so what, you, what you've described is, is basically right. Uh, if everyone stays home uh, as best as we can at the moment, then those who have already contracted the disease will slowly reveal themselves. They'll either have uh, some mild illness and, and it passes or they'll have a more significant illness and those symptoms will become uh, obvious and they can report themselves to uh, you know to, to healthcare authorities. Now um, the number of cases in the next week or two will probably rise fairly dramatically because there will be a significant number of people that have already caught it and and these will be identified over the next sort of seven to 12 days that the the ideal situation then best case is that that then plateaus we've found all the cases And because of the 14 day quarantine for New Zealanders returning to New Zealand, anyone who's bringing the disease back will also be it will be identified in quarantine. So best case scenario after, uh, you know, after two or three more weeks, we stop seeing new cases. And then after the four weeks are up, we can hopefully be confident that there are no new cases in the country and we can start bringing that alert level back down.
0: So that, correct me if I'm wrong, that obviously depends on New Zealanders following the advice of the government and this and social sanctioning or sanctioning work to stop people from doing what they ought not to. The signs, at least so far here in Auckland, uh, yesterday was a Sunday, people seem to be out and about uh, as per normal. Uh, you're You're in Reefton, do you think people are taking it seriously enough? Do you think that there's a willingness by the population to, to follow the government's advice or urging?
1: So look, uh, look, honestly, I think this remains to be seen. I think uh, there obviously has been advice around the level two level um, that, that we should be social distancing as much as possible. But the advice uh, at that stage wasn't, you know, stay at home. So, look, hopefully with strong messaging from the government and, uh, you know, and, and a show of, uh, of enforcement, you know, perhaps just having police wandering around or, or, or something like that, um, we'll start seeing New Zealanders, uh, you know, ho- hopefully taking this seriously um, and, uh, and remaining at home.
0: And dare I ask, what is the, what's the worst case scenario? Where could we look like in, in 12 weeks time if this doesn't work or New Zealanders don't follow that advice?
1: Yeah, so look, the worst case scenario is, uh, is very much at the other end of the spectrum. The advice isn't followed. Uh, the disease continues to spread further. Uh, we get an exponential increase in cases. Uh, and, you know, most of the modelling suggests that over a period of months, New Zealand would end up with, uh, you know, p- potentially a couple of million cases and, and probably tens of thousands of deaths uh, as a result of that. So that's the, that's the worst case scenario
0: okay well let's move to the economics then Don you were reserve Bank governor during the uh, during 9/11 what will be happening at the at, at the Reserve Bank and at the government level to get on top of this in terms of the economic response
3: well of course 911 was a very different kind of situation I mean, it was a sharp short shock um, we had the official cash rate I've forgotten what it was at the time but it was much much higher than it was when this crisis struck us i think from memory it was 46 or 7% and i was able to drop it by 50 basis points i could have dropped it by much more had there been a need to do so of course when the ocr starts at 1% the ability to reduce it um, is is somewhat constrained uh, the reserve bank says that the banking system can't cope with negative interest rates which some central banks around the world of course have got uh, which means that effectively uh, they've just about run out of ammunition now because the cash rate, of course, is down to
0: 0.25. Why can't they cope? Is that a, is that a software problem at the banks? Or what, what, uh, well, what- I, I don't
3: I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, uh, I am, as you know, chairman of a small bank, one of the Chinese banks, in, well, small banks, the <laughs> biggest bank in the world, the parent bank, but New Zealand small bank. Um, we could go to negative interest rates, I'm told. We don't have a system problem in doing that. Whether other banks can do that or not, I don't know. But the Reserve Bank certainly seems to be saying that the banking system can't, at this stage, go to negative rates, which means that the official cash rate, at least, is pretty well constrained at where it is now. It could go to zero, presumably, but apparently not much below, according to the Reserve Bank itself. Now, I think that's very unfortunate. It would have been good to be able to see the official cash rate go negative, because we've seen that in Europe. Quite a number of countries have negative policy rates. Uh, we apparently can't at this stage go that far. The Reserve Bank, to be fair, has announced a major uh, bond buying program this morning, of course. Whether that will be sufficient, I don't know, but it's certainly a move in the right direction and has obviously flattened the uh, longer term bond rates, which is obviously one constructive move. But I I don't, I mean, you you liken it to 9-11. In some ways, it was more akin to the Asian financial crisis in the late 90s, where we had, again, both a serious drought and a sharp fall off in our export markets. But even that was nothing remotely like the scale of this, this particular shock. This is something like we haven't seen in our adult lifetimes. I guess there are some people who remember the 1930s, but not too many of them. Uh, this is much more akin to that, I suspect, than anything we've faced uh, in either the late 90s or indeed in 9-11, because we've got both a substantial demand shock and a substantial supply shock potentially. Now just let me talk about the supply shock for a second because I don't think we yet know what that supply shock constitutes. The Prime Minister talked about going to level four, uh, alert level four, uh, where all but essential businesses close down. What does essential businesses mean in this context? She talks about supermarkets being open, pharmacies, banks, presumably power companies will continue to operate, water supply companies will continue to operate. But what about, for example, the dairy industry? Farmers can't just stop milking cows. Uh, okay, milking cows doesn't, isn't a very labor-intensive activity these days, but the milk has to be collected and taken to a dairy factory. Does it get processed or not? If it does get processed, people have to be at the dairy factory to process it. Similarly, in the, in the livestock industry, there'll be farmers counting on the fact that they can send their sheep or cattle to the works. If they can't, in some cases, those, those livestock will starve because clearly, particularly with the drought, feed is running short. So one assumes that people will still need to go to work to process that livestock at the freezing works. You move on to horticulture, which is the area I know a bit about personally. The apple crop is being harvested. The kiwi fruit crop has started harvesting. The grape crop can't be too far from being harvested. they already being harvested. People have to pick that crop because that's an entire annual income for the orchardists or, or um, vineyard owners for the year. Many of them will have big mortgages. If they don't pick their crop. They are bankrupt for the next 12 months. So, okay, but this is a food supply. Maybe the, the, the prime minister means that the food industry will continue. So, a lot depends what the Prime Minister means by only essential industries will keep working. So, can we just
0: go back? This, we've had a lot of questions throughout social media and um, members of the Taxpayers Union trying to clarify that we've effectively now got what the Americans call quantitative easing here in New Zealand, don't we? We're, um, yeah. I mean, what is the difference between that and, and, and printing money?
3: <laughs> I, I can't detect any great difference, to be honest, uh, Jordan. And let's face it, Printing money is a a reasonably prudent thing to do when you've got a situation where demand has suddenly fallen off a cliff. There's no imminent risk of inflation uh, taking place. Uh, We're not suddenly going to see Zimbabwe or Argentina emerge in New Zealand with prices escalating at a great rate, uh, almost no matter how much money we,
0: we print. And these bonds, this, I think I heard $30 billion, um, being the number floated around. Is that buying bonds from the government to supply cash flow for the crown rather than having to, to borrow it in the markets? Or is it buying commercial paper?
3: Uh, well, to be honest, I didn't hear the announcement this morning. But uh, my understanding is the reference was to bonds, which implies it's not short-term paper. And it'll be bonds in the market to some extent and, and bonds issued by by the crown. Uh, over the last little, little while, longer term interest rates have been rising in New Zealand and that's the last thing the government wants. Uh, so buying those longer dated bonds is an attempt to to uh, avoid that increase in, in interest rates.
0: I'm just going to put the same question to you that I put to Matt. Uh, what's our best case scenario in six to 12 weeks time and what's our worst case scenario from the point of view of of the central bankers?
3: Uh, well, the best case scenario, of course, is that uh, Matt's, Matt's uh, sharp reduction in cases uh, appears uh, over after two or three weeks. Of course, it won't happen immediately. Uh, and we've got on top of the virus without hugely dramatic economic damage. That will be economic damage of, of substantial size is at this point inevitable because some industries have literally been killed stone dead, at least for the time being. Uh, who would be running a, a restaurant chain? Uh, who be running an airline right now. We don't have any people owning cruise liners in New Zealand, but imagine the position of someone who owns shares in a cruise liner company. That cruise industry now is dead for the foreseeable future. And inevitably, no matter how much room is made for, let's say, freezing works and dairy works and so on, there are some industries which will be cut off at the knees for at least several months. So at best, we will see a, a short sharp reduction of GDP in the towards the end of this quarter, into the next quarter and then hopefully a pickup in the third quarter. I'm told by by one party I know who is in the retail business that their uh, sources of supply, some of which come from China, some of which come from Europe, some of which are domestic, are still supplying goods. So it may well be that after this short sharp shock, we get back to some degree of normalcy by the third or fourth quarter. But frankly, I wouldn't want to bet on that.
0: So the government is clearly trying to take the approach of saving as many jobs as possible to come out of it. We're seeing in Australia, you've effectively got helicopter money um, and allowing people to take money from their super early. You've got a conservative government in Britain that is well and truly embracing um, more than socialism, basically nationalisation of the the country's uh, wage role, uh, New Zealand, we've sort of taken a, a little bit of a hybrid approach by doing wage subsidies, and obviously that's opened up now from just small businesses into all organisations. Do you have a particular preference between those policies, Don, or is saving jobs not the not necessarily the right, um, it seems incredible to say this, but is that not necessarily the right objective?
3: I don't know enough about the detail of the other programmes to, to make a comparative comment. But I think saving jobs in the short term is an important thing to do, because while some industries, and I mentioned the cruise line, though it's not directly relevant to New Zealand, some industries will take a heck of a hit, no matter what the government does. Other industries, and in fact, hospitality is a good example of it. Restaurants, cafeterias, and so on, uh, one would assume that if they get on top of this virus, in three or four months' time, people will go back to drinking coffee and eating meals out. So you don't want that industry to disappear. Uh, you want to help it get through somehow the next three or four very difficult months.
0: What What do you think, The looking at the world economy, where are the... Our friends at the New Zealand Initiative have been blowing the whistle on uh, the potential for Italy to crash out of the euro because it's so large, probably uns, unsalvageable or unsavable, rather. What do you see as the great blinking lights in the world economy? What, what are you most worried about, Don? Uh,
3: well, the... And uh, New Zealand initiative is much better informed on on Europe than I am, particularly Oliver Hart, which knows about uh, that very very well. And I think he's right that there has to be a serious risk to the, if not the EU, then at least to the euro, uh, as as a component part, of course, of the of the uh, European Union. Uh, Greece nearly brought the euro uh, into into difficulties a few years back italy as everyone knows is a very much larger economy than than uh, than greece is so there is a, a big issue one of the interesting things is whether or not china will bounce back from what is clearly a very sharp fall in activity over february march some indications are that china is bouncing back without uh, the reemergence of the virus i saw an interview this morning of the um, South Korean Foreign Minister by the BBC, and I must say she was very impressive. And indeed, because South Korea's performance in this regard has been impressive, their virus, their their cases have levelled off in a remarkable way, much more effectively than than most other countries.
0: Well, well, let's bring Matt in here because that's been something that's been been highlighted quite a bit. The how has Singapore and South Korea done so well? South Korea, in particular, seemed to let it get a little bit out of control. Uh, at the beginning but have managed to to put a lid on it w- what do you think the reasons are for that and do you think that we we can copy it
1: yeah so look i i think there's a, a number of possible reasons here I, I don't think it's completely clear yet which of these have have been the most important factors or which combination but uh we've seen you know a dramatic curbing of the of the outbreak in in china and wuhan and in, and in south korea in particular when you look at the way their their graphs have have sort of curved to a plateau now both these countries and a number of uh, Asian countries uh, do have previous experience with with SARS, and in South Korea with MERS, um, and so I suspect that there's a lot of procedures and and systems in place uh, pre-existing for for dealing with this sort of thing, um, particularly around the technology of case tracing um, and and informing people, you know, uh, who may have been in contact with with cases. But, you know, also the, the, the lockdown measures in Wuhan were, were very dramatic from a very early, well, okay, it, it was too late, the, the initiation, because obviously it got out to the rest of the world. But, but once they started, the lockdown measures were, were very significant. And, um, I was just reading through some of these, these,
0: what do you mean by technology? You said technology measures. Yeah. What do you mean? What What do they have that we don't?
1: So South Korea has employed to, to some degree a uh, a, a mobile uh, phone system where people can. Um, I, I think it might be opt in, but but uh, I, I might be correct on that. Where people can take part in this, and it it, it if they've if they have been infected or exposed, they can let the system know and if uh, other people then come into proximity with where these people who are, who are cases or possible cases have been they they get an alert to tell them you know which areas to avoid and so forth now a lot of this depends on the telcos you know being able to have access to this data and and being able to, to use this data you know within privacy constraints and so forth and so you know perhaps some of these sorts of systems are something that um that new zealand uh you know could could be looking into
0: all right. Well, to to wrap it up, you're with someone that's, um, Matt, obviously, who has studied global catastrophic risk for many years. Um, I understand that you, with um, Professor Michael Baker and, and Nick Wilson, actually put a paper together, uh, ironically, in the last 12 months on precisely this risk. What can our listeners do other than following the advice from governments to wash our hands as we're all doing and bathe in, in a hand sanitizer um, what are some practical things that our listeners can do to lower the risks both for themselves and their family?
1: yeah look in the immediate short term the the ideal thing is to just stay at home as much as as much as possible you know that, that will that will limit spread and and look I, I go back to Don's point about uh, factories and so forth. Look, it's obviously important that some uh, workplaces that are sort of a, a bit communal will ha- will have to remain open, but if people are going directly from their home to the factory and then back to home, uh if there is an outbreak, it it should then theoretically be constrained to just the population that works at the factory, you know, perhaps 500 people or, or something like that. So you know, even if people are going out to work and so forth, re- remaining within those home units um is still going to be is still going to be very effective. The hand-washing obviously is, is super important, but another thing that I'd encourage people to do is to, you know, is to, is to reach out to their neighbours who, who may be elderly, who may be living alone, um, and you know it, it might make all the difference in the world to, to them to have someone be able to put some groceries on their doorstep or you know all these sorts of things and, and check in on them. So I, I'd say that's another super important you know, a- aspect that will help us get through this.
0: Don, last question for you. If you had your hands on the levers of power, what would you be doing differently and why?
3: <laughs> uh, Jordan, I I hesitate to answer that question. I think clearly easing a monetary policy is very important indeed, and, and the Reserve Bank has gone some way towards that. Easing fiscal policy is and, and supporting wage subsidies is also very important. I'm disappointed the government did not take uh, the advice of many people and scrapped the increase in minimum wages. It's paradoxical to increase minimum wages while you're also subsidizing wages but they decided to go ahead with, with uh, that increase, which was counterproductive in my
0: view. They've still, they've still got seven days. They could still cancel them. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yes, indeed, they could. I mean, they, they should do that. The, increasing the cost of, of labour at this point seems to me to be daft, and clearly they recognise that by introducing the subsidies. So I, I think they, to some extent that some of their policies are working against each other, but uh, clearly trying to keep as many businesses in place as possible is the right thing to be doing. The Reserve Bank is also, by the way, quite apart from monetary policy. It's said to the banking system, forget about increasing your capital ratios for the meantime. And that's quite important also because increasing capital ratios at this particular moment is quite the reverse of what the banking system should be
0: trying to do. Don, Matt, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you.